Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Now, here's David. Thank you for that last song. I was actually going to think of reading those words, but... Uh, I didn't have time to think about that, but thank you for drawing us our attention to the lamb that was slain and that's worthy to open the seals. This morning we're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians in our continuing study. Before we do, let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, it's, it's a privilege for us to be able to come to you. It's our privilege to gather together this morning and, and meet around you. And it's our great privilege to have your presence within us. Help us to understand more of what that means and help us to understand how that should change us and change our lives. And we just pray that we would be more open and more willing to receive what you have to say to us and that we might have your help in understanding all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Could you ever conceive of a situation where you would let your opponent, your adversary, just win. Now, I'm not talking about the strategy of the Toronto Maple Leafs for the last 55 years or so. I I really think they're trying to win. And this year they're doing pretty good, I understand, all of you fans out there. This is the year, maybe, eh? whatever you think. But would that make any sense to just try to lose? Uh, Would it be wise? Could that ever prove to be a winning strategy? Well, I was thinking about these things and, uh, and I was thinking about a, a hypothetical scenario and just to help us illustrate what I'm talking about. So you're, you're applying for your dream job. Okay, you've got all the qualifications for this job. You're well-trained. You've had experience. You've got the skills and and you're the best fit. You've got a great character profile and you know that you're the best candidate for this job and this is the job for you. But there's someone else who really wants that job. And and in order to get it, they think their best way to get it would be to slander you. So they say you're a liar. You have false credentials. You're arrogant, you're critical of those in authority, you have delusions of grandeur, you're mentally unstable. Oh, terrible stuff they say about you. So what would your response be to somebody like that? And what, would, what, would you, what action would you take? Now, the, the, the natural thing to do would be to say, they're lying and that's not true and I can prove it. Here's my credentials, here's my references, here's my job experiences. You can ask anybody, I'm not that type of person. And you would really make an effort to show that that person that you're, that's opposing you is wrong. So you would take all the resources you could muster. You might even consider legal action. You could actually sue them for slander. And you would do that so that they wouldn't succeed and they wouldn't uh, succeed in, in turfing you out of that position, but that you would, uh, you would succeed. Would it ever, would it ever consider, would you ever consider just letting your opponent say and do whatever they want to and not make any defense? Would that be such a wise choice? 
Well, if you listen to Ted's excellent message last week, you will recognize that I'm sort of illustrating the plan that God followed to gain victory over Satan and our release from slavery and sin. It was God's wisdom, which was totally opposite from what the world's wisdom is. God overcame Satan, not by killing Satan, but allowing Satan to kill. Nowhere is this more graphically illustrated than in John's letter to the seven churches, that book of Revelation, where Jesus is depicted as a lamb slain by violence. And that's where I was going to read, worthy is the lamb out of Revelation, but we just sang those words, so that's so appropriate. But this lamb that was slain by violence, can you think of anything more pathetic than a lamb that was slaughtered that is now receiving the praise and worship of all created beings? The cross of Christ is God's wisdom. From what appeared like a horrible defeat, God won the greatest victory. By losing, Jesus won the victory for all of us and for and over all the forces that opposed him. What I would like to look at today is whether this wisdom that we, that Paul has been talking about in the, in this in these verses has an even broader application than just the great victory of salvation that Jesus won. Does such wisdom have a role in our behavior in our and in our relationship with others? Are we to emulate this wisdom? Is this to be part of our life? If so, how are we to learn such wisdom? Because it is the complete opposite of our natural responses. In our wisdom, victory is achieved by the use of superior resources, either physical or mental or somehow. We win victory by our forceful efforts. The old expression, might is right, and that's the way we think. Is there a place for God's wisdom in our lives? When you consider what Paul's purpose is in writing this letter, especially these chapters, it's obvious that he's connecting God's wisdom with the problems facing the Corinthian Christians. They are arguing and squabbling about who is right. They have divided up into factions. They seem to have the idea that making superior arguments will prove which of them is right. Paul wants them to stop these disputes by learning and using God's wisdom instead of their own worldly wisdom. So I conclude from that that God's wisdom needs to be used in our lives. And if that's the case, then he must have a way for us to know his wisdom, and he must make it possible for us to use this wisdom, to make it really work. Let's read the passage that we're studying this morning. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16, but I'm going to back up a couple of verses where Ted left off last week just so that we get a little bit of the context. Of course, we are jumping right into the middle of Paul's thoughts, so you'll have to read chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 really to get the, the broader picture. But here's these verses. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however... Speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
However, it is writ- as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we've been speaking a lot about wisdom in these passages, in this section. I just thought I'd take a moment to give a definition of wisdom, which I uh, found from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He defines wisdom this way. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. We can see that the cross, which Paul has said is the wisdom of God, fits this definition. So, first of all, God identified the best and highest goal. And the goal that he has in mind is our glory. Um, As Peterson translates it in the message, a way to bring out the best in us. The way to make it help us to be living as his children in a loving relationship with our father. This is his goal. This is what he wants to achieve. So that's the goal. God then chose the highest, the, the surest means to attain this goal. And I would suggest that the only means to attain this goal. And that was for Jesus willing death on the cross. His inclination or his reason to choose this extreme plan was his great love for us. So you can see how this definition fits the idea of God's wisdom. Worldly wisdom also sort of fits in this same definition. Wise choices are to be made with, you know, the selection of high and good goals, using good methods and and with the best of intentions. Unfortunately, as people, we are limited in all components of this definition of wisdom. So even our best attempts can come up short. And what's worse, often those components are affected by our corrupt nature. Our choice of best goals will often be what is best for us. Our means may be what works for us without any consideration of how that might affect others or the bigger picture. And our motives are often very selfish and self-centered. So this this dilemma demonstrates the problem we have as humans. We have limitations and flaws. We have all kinds of difficulties when it comes to knowing and following divine wisdom. This limitation is even illustrated in verse 8 of our passage where Paul says even the rulers of this age could not understand the wisdom of God. 
And that actually turned out to be a pretty good thing, because if they had, Paul says, they wouldn't have crucified this, our Savior. But that was all part of God's wisdom. We could discuss about who, who is, are these rulers of this age, but uh, it's a little bit. Well, some people say they're just like the political rulers, like Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and maybe Caesar. Others say, no, they're the, the rulers, uh, the nefarious transcendent rulers, like the evil forces around us that control those men or perhaps had an influence on those men. And there's a bit of debate back and forth. But, but really, I'll go with both options. I'm going to take both. Uh, that it could be that Paul could be referring to both of them. But getting back to our limitations, Paul uses a quote to prove to us that humans don't have the capacity to grasp God's wisdom. We can't even imagine it, as verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So, is that it then? Are we to muddle along on our own, trying to decide the highest goals, the best means, while dealing with our weak inclinations? It doesn't look too promising for us to be able to know and live God's wisdom on our own. But then in one of those but God verses, and the New King James Version puts it this way, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So what we couldn't achieve on our own, God has again come through and done this for us. We are not on our own. God has revealed them. Isn't it great that God is a God who reveals? That he isn't a God that just is out there and you can't possibly get to know him. But he has revealed himself. He has revealed himself most obviously in, in through Jesus, his son. But he also reveals himself through his spirit. And we'll just look a little bit more about that. So how does that work? How does the Spirit reveal God's wisdom to us? Well, the Spirit of God, for one thing, knows God, right? Paul says, just like we kind of know ourselves, our spirits within us know what we are like, what we are doing, what we're about. We know how we tick. God's Spirit knows God. Makes sense, right? God is God. We are us and we each other knows themselves. But Paul writes that being the spirit of God, the spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. Why did he say deep things? Well, I was thinking about that. The word for deep in Greek is bathos. And and uh, and that means how deep is the water? Basically, what's below the surface? What's the depth here? What how deep is it? And anyone who's been a boater probably has asked that question more than once. <laughs> How deep is the water? Can I actually go through here or will I hit bottom? Or what's the bottom like? If I have to toss out an anchor, will it actually grab anything down there? Or will my anchor even reach to the bottom? To the, you know, that's, all those questions come to, to the mind of those who, uh, who enjoy or who are on the water in boats. And I'm not a sailor, but I enjoy reading uh, naval fiction Stories. I've read dozens of them. <laughs> I confess, I've read lots of them. You know, the Hornblower, the Master and Commander series, all of, and a bunch of others. But I still haven't become a sailor yet after reading all of that nautical stuff. But in the age of sailors, three things I've picked up is that they, 
they would cast the lead. They would throw out a line when they were, especially when they were close to shore, because they wouldn't know how deep the water is, and they wouldn't want to go aground or wreck their ship on, on the uh, rocks beneath. So they would drop a leaded weight in to measure the distance to the bottom. And it, it, it works pretty well, except it doesn't give them a lot of information quickly, and it works only relatively shallow water. And... Um, they would often include on that lead weight a scoop mechanism so that when they drew it back up, they could get a sample of the ocean floor. So whether it was sand or shale or, or gravel or mud, or if they didn't get anything, then they would assume it's, it's rocky and there's nothing there. But, but uh, that's what they would use uh, to discover information about the depths of the ocean. So in Paul's day, the bottom of the ocean was a complete mystery, Right really close to shore, they could they could sort of sound it out a little bit like this. But when you got into the deep ocean, no one had ever been to the bottom of the ocean and come back to tell about it. <laughs> and that that was a, a very appropriate metaphor for the depths of God. No one has been able to find the deepest parts of God. And and no one can do that. There's just impossible. So that was a, a very good metaphor to describe the impossibility of of fathoming God, measuring the depths of God, because he was unfathomable. But in 1960, this machine, the bath escape, you see where they get the name from this? <laughs> then this machine actually descended to the deepest part of the ocean. It was in 1960, it was in my lifetime, so not that terribly long ago. And it went down to the Marianas Trench and found the deepest part of the ocean. That was the first time that humans had ever been able to go to the ocean depths and return again and tell what they saw there. And to their surprise, they found at the deepest, darkest, highest pressure level, living creatures existing on the ocean floor. Completely surprised by that, I think. And so they were able to find these surprising things about the depths of the ocean. Well, the Spirit of God is a lot like the lead line or the bathist staff that can plumb the depths of God and bring back information about what God is like, what he's thinking, what are his plans, and what does he want us to learn. And there's a lot of surprises for us to learn in the depths of God. And one of the most astounding pieces of information ever conveyed in verse 12 says that we have received God's spirit. Isn't that remarkable? Let's pause and think about that for a second. God has come in to us if we have asked him to, if we have invited him in, if we've received his offer and opened that door and let him come into our lives. We have received God's spirit. That's that's just utterly uh, amazing. The spirit then is now our line of communication with God. We have a means of understanding the wonderful things of God. We can now know the things that God has prepared for those who love him, as we read in verse nine. Paul writes to the Corinthians that he is speaking the words of God's wisdom to them as he received them from the spirit. Paul is a wise and learned, learned scholar, and he's quite capable of using human wisdom to communicate his points. He has been trained in rhetoric. He's been trained in all the philosophical thinking of his day. 
But when he is speaking about Jesus' death on the cross, he is using the Spirit's words to explain God's mysterious wisdom. Now, communication can be a challenging exercise, even for God. Because it requires a, both a sender and a receiver. I've gone to the wrong place here. Well, that's the harp sound. That's God calling. Oh, now nah, delete that one. I, I thought I'd block that call. I'm not going to receive that message. That's one of the responses, and that's one of the problems with communication, right? It takes a resender and a receiver. And there are at least three different responses to the communication. Two result in problems with that communication, and one allows for reception. So the first response is rejection. Like God's number shows up, decline or block. Um, must be a junk call. This message won't get through because the spirit has never been received. The door has never been opened. There is no relationship from which to exchange thoughts. Paul calls these people natural or not spiritual. The word is used to describe living things in general, like any life on on the earth has natural breath, but doesn't have a connection with the spirit if God's spirit is not uh, within them. They have chosen to reject his attempts at communication with them. And as a result, they are unable to understand God's wisdom, and they think it's foolishness or crazy or just not sensible. The idea of losing to win would be complete nonsense to such a person. The second response is that wholehearted reception, the welcoming in of the spirit and giving them a warm and sincere reception. There's an intentional two-way communication. Paul describes these people as spiritual A broad word meaning breath or wind and metaphorically the inner being of us, a spirit or as God has his spirit. So spiritual people of those who are eagerly accepted the spirit and are filled with his presence. Sometimes I think we misunderstand this concept of being filled by the spirit. We tend to think of uh, that in the picture of a container like a glass and you can put a little bit of water in or you can completely fill the cup. So you can be partly filled or completely filled. But thinking um, this way doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it. It's such, in such a model, God's spirit can be divided up into variable portions. You can have a little bit of God or a lot of God. I don't think it is possible to measure out God. He is either... There or he is not in, your, in the house or he's either been welcomed in or he is not. But I think a better picture to think about being filled is go back to our, our sailing metaphors again. It amazes me to think that ships travel the globe using only the power of the wind. Good sailors know how to catch the wind and use it to move them. They spend a lot of effort in setting the sails just right in order to get the greatest power possible from the wind. When the sails are set right, they are said to be filled with the wind. That drives the ship to the greatest possible speed. I think a sail full of the wind is a very appropriate metaphor for being filled with the Spirit of God or God's breath or God's wind. When the Spirit, when filled with the Spirit, we are driven or empowered by the Spirit to the greatest possible potential. 
In verse 15, Paul notes that spiritual people are able to understand God's wisdom as they study it and examine it. They will be able to live their lives and make choices according to that wisdom. Their ability to understand God's wisdom and the type of choices that they make will put them beyond the understanding of those who are limited by the limits of human wisdom. They will be unfathomable to others. So spiritual people will be a misunderstood people. They won't behave and act like people normally do. Something will be mysterious about them. And I think that's what Paul wants his Corinthian Christians to become, to become people that are not acting according to their natural responses, but according to the Spirit's responses. Verse 16, Paul ends this passage with a remarkable statement, just absolutely what we, what we would say was mind-blowing, and he's using that word, because we have the mind of Christ. We understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. And that is just a, a really dramatic way uh, and a remarkable thing that we have of, of understanding. Now, I don't think Paul is saying that we have all the knowledge of God or that we even think exactly like God, but rather that we can have the perspective of God, God's view of things. We can have the attitude of God, how he wants us to think. And I think that's what he's getting at. And even as we look at where Paul gets this idea from, he quotes a, a question out of Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, the, the writer in Isaiah says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, that's that's the Septuagint version of that verse in Hebrews 40, 13. And probably that's the Bible that Paul picked up often and read from being the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so we get what Paul wrote in First Corinthians 6, 16, who has the mind of the Lord. We have the mind of Christ. But it was interesting to me to think about uh, what the actual Hebrew writers uh, said in their language when they wrote this verse. And if you. Go back, and I've used the NIV uh, translation uh, because it uses the word spirit. Who can fathom, and the NIV happens to put in a nautical term as well, so that was good. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Uh, that is the, the word mind and spirit have been interchanged. And in, in the Greek translators of the Hebrew word, they use the word mind. But it's interesting to think back that the Hebrew actually was talking about spirit, which kind of makes the last verse of uh, this, ch- this chapter to be uh, an interesting thing. If you put spirit instead of minus into, and that's what we've been saying all along. So Peterson, in his translation of the message, puts Isaiah, uh, puts that last verse this way. Isaiah's question. Is there anyone around who knows God's spirit? Anyone who knows what he's doing? has been answered, Christ knows, and we have Christ's spirit. That kind of ties it in our thoughts together about uh, receiving the spirit and understanding what God is thinking, what his attitude is, and what we should have. I just wanted to sneak into Carrie's verses next week just because the third way of of, uh, transmission that can cause problems is... is, um, what's spoken of in the next few verses. And then I'll sort of try and illustrate that again with my cell phone. 
Oh, hello, God. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Great to hear from you today. Oh, could I, could I call you back? Yeah, I'm just a little busy right now. I'm arguing with my neighbor. So uh, can you just hang on and I'll call you back in a little while. Thanks. <laughs> that, so you have the spirit there and you have the ability to listen to it. But sometimes we just ignore the spirit in our lives. We don't really connect, communicate well. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. Paul calls these people, um, and if you look ahead in the next few verses, uh, carnal or fleshly or literally, um, um, yeah, fleshly. It's possible to have the spirit, but to ignore him. Ignoring the spirit would be like a ship, again, with its sails flapping in the wind, making a lot of noise, but not giving any direction or any power to the ship, but leaving it to be tossed to and fro in the waves. The result of this response in the Corinthian church was quarreling and strife that was evident. That proves that these people were not living according to the pattern of God's wisdom. Instead, um, instead of humility, they were arrogant and were using worldly wisdom to prove their superiority over others. They could have been saying something like, I'm the best or I am right and you are wrong. They were not listening to the spirit's wisdom. They had put God on hold. The idea that um, this type of wisdom is an important thing for us to, to learn and to understand and to, uh, to live by is not just this part of Corinthians. I'd just like to read a few passages just in closing to, to, to uh, illustrate how broadly this principle, this idea comes through in Scripture. And I'll just read some, some passages that will sort of illustrate the the spirit of God has been trying to impress this on us a lot of places. And we need to understand and live like this. I'll just let them speak for themselves as I as I uh, read them without much comment. Going to Matthew chapter five, where Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on this on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And Jesus' thoughts on leadership in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 42. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over them, over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came to came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul wrote to the Philippian church and he talked about having the same attitude as Jesus. And that we've talked about that, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the spirit of Christ. We could put those words in Paul's message here, but he uses the word attitude, which 
actually is another word for mind in the Greek language. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. And one more passage where Jesus was um, talking to his disciples and he used this idea about uh, in order to save their lives, they must lose their lives. Matthew 16, 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him, saying such things for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you are trying to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. I'm always impressed by the um, emphasis that those last words have in the Gospels. They are that idea is quoted no fewer than six times in the Gospel writers uh, writings. And I don't think I can find any other idea of Jesus expressed so often, so frequently, so often repeated in the Gospels, except that last line that uh, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. The emphasis is just impressive. Can, can it be made any plainer? God is really trying to tell us that losing is the way to winning. The wisdom of God is the cross. This was this displayed in Jesus, and it is the wisdom that he wants us to follow in his life. If the idea of losing to win is starting to make some sense to you, I would say you have received that understanding from the spirit. You are starting to experience the wind in your sails. That's a marvelous thought. The God of the universe is speaking to us. Amazing. Amen. Well, Father God, although our time is short here, we're grateful for the time we could spend in community learning more about you and praising you. May we go forth this week mindful of the, the goodness that we live because of you. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.